My mom came to visit a few weeks back, and it was then I found out she had ordered a genealogical survey from 23andMe, and even had a little app on her phone to show me the results. It wasn't the geographical national origin stuff that interested me. My mom is an unsurprising blend of white, off-white, pinkish-white, white-white, porcelain, and beige. Though, with a couple of surprising slivers of Nigerian and Ivory Coast back there somewhere, what interested me was that the 23andMe app constructs a chronological family tree and has gleaned the dates for your ancestors' births, deaths, moves, marriages, divorces, remarriages. This would not be interesting for my dad's side of the family, the Carswells, uh, whose narrow family tree is an utterly predictable line of a person from Kansas who marries someone who has a child, who marries someone who has a child, who marries someone, so on. But my mom's side isn't so much a family tree as a family jungle. I had known, but not with such specificity. I had not had a visual illustration of just how many people my great-grandparents had had children with besides each other. I guess I just never asked why my grandma had four half-sisters on her mom's side, each with a a different dad, and three half-siblings on her dad's side with different moms. Why should I have known, I guess, when by the time I knew my great-grandparents, they were sweet, sedate octogenarians who watched a lot of television and gave me oranges when I visited. It's probably not all that unique, this way that we have of telling stories in our families that gloss over or entirely skip some of the more shameful details, even recent ones. This tends to be how we tell stories about ourselves, too. It's one of the reasons I find the Bible deeply fascinating. We are 21 chapters in, in Genesis, the origin story of Hebrew people, the 23 and me of our faith. If you remember from weeks past, Abraham has received the promise from God that he will be the father of many nations. God is with him. And then our lectionary skipped some of the more shameful details of our story of where we come from in the way that we do tend to skip these kinds of things. So let me catch you up. Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt in their wanderings, gained favor with the Pharaoh, and left with riches, including a few slaves. God has promised Abraham a child, but no positive pregnancy test yet, so Sarah helpfully suggests that they take matters into their own hands, that Abraham sire a child with one of the slaves they received in Egypt. Her name is Hagar. Abraham does so, and as you might imagine, the triangular relationship between Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar isn't exactly what a therapist would call healthy. Not to jump too far ahead, but the Genesis reading today is the second time that Sarah has sent Hagar into the wilderness to die there. 
But before then, God shows up to Abraham again and says, no, you will have a child with Sarah. And Abraham's response is that he literally falls over laughing, the text says. He's 99 years old at this point. Sarah is 90. Time goes on. Still no child. Where we left off last week, three strangers appeared to Abraham and told him Sarah would have a child yet again. Sarah is the one who laughs at this point. And we got that beautiful question, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The sweet mood does not last. Because where does Abraham go from this point? He leaves with his nephew Lot and the strangers, who we know now are angels, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story? Heard of it? God's right up front with Abraham. I am going to destroy this place. Wipe it off the map. We aren't told just what evil Sodom and Gomorrah have committed, but we'll find out. Abraham argues with God, says, look, suppose there are 50 righteous people in this city. You wouldn't kill everybody here just to strike down the wicked, would you, God? God acquiesces, and Abraham keeps pressing his luck until he finally bargains God down to the number ten, just ten good people, and God will let the city stand. That night, we find out just what evil Sodom and Gomorrah commits. Two strangers show up, those same angels in disguise who visited Abraham. Two strangers show up, and Abraham's nephew, Lot, takes them in from the streets to give them food and a place to rest. But then every man in town, the Bible says, young and old, every last one, show up and demand that Lot hand over the strangers so they can rape them. I am sure you were taught that the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah was rape. But if you were not, now you know. The story does get worse. Lot tries to appease the crowd by offering his daughters in the stranger's place. But the crowd desires unwilling victims only. The angels torch the city while Lot and his daughters escape to a cave where he gets so blindingly drunk that he impregnates his daughters. It's only then we get back to our story today with Sarah overcome with jealous rage and weak-willed Abraham and they send a woman and her child into the wilderness to die. For the second time, I think I mentioned I am telling you these stories for three reasons. First, there's scripture. This is the word of the Lord. A faith that cannot endure finding the worst of human nature in scripture probably cannot endure finding the worst of human nature in the world. It is a faith that will not last long. Second, 
It is an old and tired trope in our culture wars that children are being corrupted by, insert the names of current corrupting books and influences. When I came into Christianity as a teenager, they told me it was Harry Potter and secular music that would turn me into an apostate. But the Bible is somehow always ignored in these debates. Even though it's filled with all sorts of depravity and horror, we're only 21 chapters in here. And this is either because we haven't actually read it, or, I hope this is the case, because we have reached the conviction that difficult stories can yield spiritual nourishment. You can tell folks not to read it, or you can teach them how to read it. That lesson goes for far more than the Bible. But third, these stories tell an important truth. Right from the beginning, the Hebrew people told the story of themselves, a shameful catalog of rape, incest, murder, genocide, betrayal. The timeline on their 23andMe report is unflinching. Mixed in there are stories of love, courage, faith, companionship, sacrifice, and you find these stories coming from the same people who exhibited the behavior we despise. You can't tell a true story without telling all of it. And I am convinced You can't find God without all of it. Scripture opens the door to you to bring the complicated family history, the full stories of who we are. From day one, we've resisted this. We've obfuscated and denied and blamed others for our behavior, for the long lineage of hope and harm and triumph and trauma that produced us. We have wanted simpler stories and have forgotten about God, from whom no secrets are hid, and who doesn't seem to shy away from the very worst we have to offer. This is the good news. If we can bring the whole of that self before God, we might recognize that it's the whole story of ourselves that God remembers and that God redeems. And if you were able to see that, you might just be able to see the complicated wholeness and worthiness of your neighbor.